Okay. So first of all, again, just to, uh, you know, to reiterate what my wife mentioned. So again, a big, big thank you to the Schillers. You know, really, really, again, for opening your home again, once again, Adar. Uh, like, have a chazak, almost a chazaka going. She was as well. And, and Bechlal, like Yehud is a major part of the shul, as you are as well. So Hashem should continue to bless you with Shef Baruch and Aslach on all levels. Nachas from the children. Simcha all around. Simcha all around. Okay, so just to speak a little bit about uh, the month of Adar, the Yantav of Purim. <clears throat> so, listen, yeah. Every Yantif, as we know, is commemorating on some level a historical event. That's, uh, that's what we're familiar with. But, you know, as time goes on, as we, as we get older, and we become hopefully more sophisticated in all areas of life, so we have to become a little more sophisticated in our uh, perspective on Yantif as well. And so these old stories that certainly once upon a time happened and we're commemorating them, we have to think about what those mean for us right now. And so permanent can't be seen as an old holiday. It has to be something that's current events. It has to be something that's experienced, that's experienced right now. The, 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 the decree of Haman and thwarting that decree and the victory over Haman, it has to be something. We have to redefine or, or deepen our understanding of it to such a degree where it becomes something that's relevant for us. We, you know, there was a decree you know, that the, for the destruction of the Jewish people, we survived it. It's Kavaldic. It's amazing. But what does that mean for us right now? Okay, so it's like this. There is a, um, if you think about it, there's a certain, you know, listen, you know, there's a, there's a, a saying amongst, amongst Chazal, that if the Jewish people are not prophets themselves, they're the students of prophets. In other words, whatever the Jewish people do, you have to take seriously. Whether even they realize what they're doing or not, it's something to take seriously. So by Kalah Yisrael, there's such a thing as having themes on Purim. There's such a thing. It doesn't say in Halachal such a thing. No real such idea. But uh, it became a thing to have themes. So it's an amazing thing because, because every single year, there's so many Yidin Baruch Hashem, and every single year, everyone comes up with a different theme. Right? No one wants to repeat a theme. So the same thing it is with Purim. The Yantif itself, the story of Purim, there's a lot, a lot of themes, a lot of love layers to it. And, you know, almost every year you can look at the Megillah and hopefully with fresh eyes that, you know, sort of think back to that story, the famous story of Mordechai and Esther, and see new themes to it. So I was thinking about the other day, trying to think with fresh eyes a little bit, and something popped out at me when it comes to the story of Purim and also just the way we celebrate Purim. And that is a theme of shared reality and private reality. What do I mean? So there, there are certain things in the mitzvahs of Purim that, are, that, that sort of uh, uh, pinpoint to experiences that we all share together. We all share together. So in other words, um, reading the Megillah itself. One of the reasons why you read the Megillah is, as the Gemara says, persumenis, to publicize the nes. In other words, we should all be on the same page. We all have, this is all a, a, um, a, uh, a, a, a reality that is concrete, that's not subjective, a, you know, a, uh, what's the opposite of subjective? Objective. objective, there you go, very good. So an objective reality, the story of Purim, and we're all sharing that together in shul. And as the halach is, that, you know, a person has the opportunity to go to a bigger place where there's more people reading the Megillah, you go to a bigger place. We want everyone to be to experience that objective reality together. So Purim, so the reading of the Megillah is about sharing a common experience. Uh, the Shalchmanes, Atanas Avyanim, the Suda of Purim, it's all about people, Jewish people coming together to share something. 
Okay, so it could be sharing food, sharing a party, sharing uh, sharing perm together. It's an experience that we're all coming together for, that we're all sharing that same experience. So that's a certain theme of perm. Okay. On the other hand, there's another element of perm, which is the exact opposite, which is about experiencing more a subjective reality, a reality that's private that you really can't share with anyone else. So one of the, the probably the most strange, one of the most strange halachas in all of Torah, especially when it comes to Purim, is the Gemara says, that a person has to drink on Purim to the point of intoxication. The Gemara says that a person has to, has to do that properly. But, um, but there is such an idea of drinking on Purim. So that idea of a person that is intoxicated is usually something that's extremely unbecoming. Um, and part of the reason why it's unbecoming is because when a person is intoxicated, that means they're living in their own little reality. They don't, they, you know, when, 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 when a person's, you know, uh, dealing with other people, you're automatically thinking about how the other person perceives you and you react accordingly. You know, you, hold, you, know, you say certain things. Uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, uh, being an adult means not just to... Say, say what you want. You, you're thinking about the repercussions. How would someone hear this? How are they going to receive this? Is this going to make them feel good, feel bad? What's their reaction? And sort of you're engaging in life with this an understanding that you're sharing the world with other people. When a person's drunk or intoxicated and they lose their inhibition, what's really happening is that they're, they've completely moved into their own subjective reality. And that world that they're now living in is something that no one else sees and no one else knows. And they're operating in such a way where they're, just, they're, do, they're doing their thing. You know? And the world around them is completely irrelevant to them. And what's ironic is that that's usually something that's, 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 that's no good at all. That's usually no good. One of the, one of the greatest uh, qualities a person can say about themselves is that they are a bar or bas das. Right? They have das. Das means an awareness of other people. And living life, living with living life as a shared experience with other people, but all of a sudden, when it comes to Purim, on the one hand, we celebrate the shared experience, Shalachmanis and Matanas of and the Suda and Read the Megillah. It's all about sharing, right? On the other hand, there's this mitzvah of drinking, which brings that person into this private space that only they know about, and they're unable to articulate what they're experiencing to other people. And so, this is the great irony of Purim: Are we celebrating? a shared experience, an objective reality, or are we celebrating and trying to experience a subjective reality that's private, that's insular, that's, that's disconnected from everyone else? In a certain sense, these opposite themes, you find this in the story of Purim itself. On the one hand, <clears throat> Purim is about things being open and revealed. So, for example, in the aftermath of the story, so the Pasuk says at the end of, at the end of Megillah Sester, that it created such an open Kiddush Hashem, about how the Rabbanu Shalom was protecting us and taking care of us, even, you know, even uh, within the confines of nature. So it says in the Pasuk that there was an extreme amount of conversions as a result of the story of Purim. That's how, that's how out in the open it was. That's, how, that's how, um, how much of an influence the story of Purim had on the outside world. The, the, the Megillah ends off this, like the scene that, that, the, that the Megillah paints to give us that picture of redemption is Mordechai and Esther exiting the palace, wearing roller clothing, you know, and sort of going into the world for everyone to see. So there's a certain level of openness and revelation and objective shared reality that Perm is about. On the other hand, 
This is such a major part of Purim, which is private and insular. Esther Hamalka is by herself in the palace, and she's experiencing something there that she can't, that she herself uh, would never have expected, and certainly she can't share with anyone else. And so there's there's this there's this duality of of shared experience and private at the same time. So you have to understand what is what does this mean? Okay, that's number one. Number two, there's a saying that we have. There's a line that we have from the Zara Kaddish. And the Zohar is comparing and contrasting the Yontif of Purim with every other holiday. And the, and, and the Zohar says an interesting thing. It, it's, it's Purim and Chanukah as well, but obviously we're talking about Purim right now. The Zohar says that B'derach Klal, generally speaking, <coughs> Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, those holidays that we have primarily from the Torah are considered to be masculine redemptions. That's what the Zohar puts it. Misitra D'Tchur, they're coming from the masculine side. On the other hand, Purim says the Zohar Kaddish, is Misitra Tanukva, it's a feminine redemption. It's considered to be a feminine redemption. Now, now obviously it doesn't just mean men versus women, because we all have to keep Pesach, we all have to keep Purim. So it's not a matter of, you know, this sex has that Yantif, and the other one has the other. But there is, the Zohar Kaddish is telling us that there is a, there is, there are these two types of redemptions, there are these two types of experiences. There's something that's called masculine, something that's called feminine. And the Zohar Kodesh is identifying for us that Purim has some quality of a feminine redemption to it. And listen, you know, the, the, the hero of Purim is Esther. The, the Megillah is called by her name. It could have been called Megillah's Mordechai, or, you know, it could have been called by the enemy, but it's called Megillah's Esther for a reason. So we have to identify this. What is, what's going on over here? Okay. One final theme of Purim, and then we'll begin to, to explain. <clears throat> In the story of Purim, again, the way we're taught in school, and just when you read, when you read the, just the, the storyline, you know, the, the cliff notes for it, the story is revolving around a threat of annihilation and our overcoming that, and God helping us overcome that. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. But the truth is when you, when you, when you, you know, zoom out and you see the story of Purim from a more historical perspective in, you know, in the context of the larger Tanakh, it's not simply about our victory over the decree of Haman of annihilation. The, the Yontif of Purim is a celebration of the Jewish people being able to transition from the first Beis HaMikdash time period to the second Beis HaMikdash time period. That's really what it's about. So, for example, uh, we, Haman, Haman and his ten sons, like if you think about it in the story of Purim, like Haman is killed, fine. And then Esther has this thing that she asks Achashverosh that the ten sons of Haman should also be hanged. Well, whoever heard of the ten sons of Haman? Like, where are they coming from? You have something against Haman, I get it. He was the enemy from the beginning of the story. What's the ten sons of Haman? So the truth is, it's coming from a historical backdrop. What, right before the story of Purim, the Jewish people began to rebuild the second base in English. Right, the first base in English was destroyed. We're in exile in Bavel for 70 years. <clears throat> Towards the end of the 70 years, the monarchy of Bavel, of Babylonia, falls apart and is taken over by Persia. And this is where the story of Purim comes in. So the Jewish people at the end of those 70 years of exile find themselves under the Persian government and they begin to rebuild the second base of Migdash in Eretz Yisrael. The Pasuk tells us in Sefer Ezra that the 10 sons of Haman being headed by their father Haman sent letters and started accusing the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael of rebelling against the Persian government and he told Achashverosh and the government that they have to stop the building of the second temple because this is a threat to the government and so on. And this was really the motivation behind the scenes of what Haman didn't just have a problem with the Jews. 
He specifically had a problem with the building of a second base amigdash. That was that was the thing. And so when when Esther Amalka uh, sees Haman's defeat, the Haman's defeat, she doesn't just see this. Okay, it means that we're going to survive. It means that finally we'll be able to finish building the second base amigdash. And so as a symbol of that victory, she asks Achashverosh to hang the ten sons of Haman, who were the ones to stop the building. Throughout the story of Purim, when Achashverosh keeps on talking to Esther, he says, I'll give you till half the kingdom. Till half the kingdom. So what does it mean, till half the kingdom? So the Gemara says it means, what he's saying is, I'll give you everything you want, Esther Amalka, not the second base amigdash. That was the last thing he's holding on to. And in fact, ironic, you know, the, the irony of all ironies is that Esther and Achashverosh have a son. The Megillah doesn't tell us this, but it's later on in Tanakh. They have a, they have, she, she stays by, she stay, you know, she does, she's not left free, she's still the queen. They have a son together, Daryavesh II, and he's Jewish, his mother's Jewish, and he's the final king of the Persian Empire, and he gives permission, finally, to, re, to continue building and to rebuild the second base of Megillah. So in a larger sense, the entire story of Purim is not just our victory over, over death, it's, it's our ability to rebuild the second base of Megillah. So we have to understand that what does that mean? What's the difference between the first base of Megiddo, second base of Megiddo, and how does the general themes of Purim fit into this context of second base of Megiddo? You know, we're hoping for the third base of Megiddo. Uh, what was so special about the second? <clears throat> okay, those are all the questions like this. What's the, the fundamental difference between the time period of the first base of Megiddo and the time period of the second base of Megiddo? And again, this is in history, this is where Purim is. It's at that crossroads between the first and the second. And again, like I just said, a major part of Purim is our ability to transition healthfully from the first to the second without any, without any uh, roadblocks in between to rebuild the second base of English and so on. So what's the fundamental difference between the first and second? So it's like this. <clears throat> it's a very important principle. The first base of Migdash, Yiddishkeit, the focal point of Yiddishkeit was extremely different during the first base of Migdash and in the second and post, you know, t- till nowadays. The focal point is extremely different. If you had a time machine and you had to go back in time and you were put back in time to go back to visit the first base of Migdash time period, you would certainly recognize Yiddishkeit, you know, halacha is halacha, that's not changing. But you would, you would realize very, very quickly that something is very, very different. The focal point, the objective, the, it, 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 Yiddishkeit was, was very different. How so? In the time period of the first base Hamikdash, that was a time period that's defined as a time of prophecy. Now, when we think of Nevoah, we think of it, okay, listen, what's Nevoah? Nevoah is, you had a big tzaddik or tzaddikus, and they go to sleep, and you have a dream that Hashem tells them what's going to be tomorrow. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy, prophecy wasn't just, that, that is true, that they would have you know, visions and they would have knowledge of what's going to be in the future. But prophecy was, a, was an all-pervasive experience that the Jewish people had. Prophecy meant that a person is living and operating in this world, but they're completely, but they're also at the same time living and operating in a, in a transcendent place. When you had Nevi'im walking the streets of Eretz Yisrael, we're talking about people that were living in the world. So you see them, you know, but they're, they're completely living in a different space. They're completely living in a different space. It, they were living in a space that was the space of the soul, the space of the neshama. They were going through the motions of this world. They were going through experiences of this world. But what they were really seeing and what they were really experiencing was something altogether different, altogether transcendent. 
altogether mysterious. And that was something that the prophets and prophetesses were, were expert at, which is living in a world, but truly experiencing a subjective, internal, soulful reality that they can't really share, something within themselves. The prophets and prophetesses were the extreme to that, but every single Jew, on some level, that was their experience. Yiddishkeit at that time, of course there were, there were you know, laws and details of Yiddishkeit, but the objective of Yiddishkeit, every mitzvah that the Jewish people performed, and people knew this, this is how they were raised, is that the mitzvah that they were performing was trying to get them into some space within themselves. It was, it was an entrance into some deeper part of their own soul. And when, if you asked a Jew during the times of the first space of Middash, what is Shabbos? They wouldn't be able to tell you. They wouldn't be able to tell you. Because Shabbos to them, of course there was halachas about what to do in Kiddush and Abdullah. But when they thought about Shabbos, they didn't see it as the, as the objective reality we all can share in, which is, what does Kiddush look like? That's not what they were experiencing. They were experiencing through the act of making Kiddush or listening to Kiddush an entrance into a different place. And what that place was in the soul was something that fundamentally you cannot explain. You can't, you can't articulate. It's something that was otherworldly. That's what Yiddishkeit was. Now, on the, on the one hand, that's a beautiful thing. Because you have a nation on earth called the Jewish people, centered by the first temple, who are living in, wor- in the world, operating what seems to be in, in a very you know, plain world, but they're completely living in a different space. That's a beautiful thing. The problem is, the problem with that, is that there's no, you can't give that over. You can't give that over to your children. You can't give that over to a new generation. If you experience it, then that's great. But there's no language to communicate that with. You can't experience that. It's, you know, it's like the classic example of a person, Lolenu, that, that, uh, that it wasn't given the, the gift of sight. You can't explain to them what a color is. It's not possible. So the, 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 the beauty, the, the grandeur, the beauty, the depth of Judaism in the first temple was amazing. But because of its depth, it didn't have the ability for it to be communicated properly. And so you have this phenomenon. Now Hashem sees the future and knows that the Jewish people are going to have to go into exile. And they're going to have to be scattered throughout the generations and throughout the world and throughout the, every country. And here's the problem. If Judaism remains the same as it is in the first temple, who's, with, with its focus on the dimension of the soul, the inarticulable, the inexplainable, the subjective reality of the person themselves, then the problem is you're not going to be able to, then Judaism is not going to survive being scattered amongst the exiles. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to articulate what Judaism is to the next generation who are then going to be moving out of the shtetl, who are going to be moving away from you, who are not going to have the same experiences as you. They're not going to be in your shalim with the, you know, in the temple seeing the Kain Gadol and so on. They're not going to have that. And so if, if Yiddishkeit is, is, is the experience of the soul, which by its very definition means it can't be communicated, then that's okay when you're all living in the old city of Yerushalayim. Let's go out. Like, and you, you're all sort of sharing this secret universe within yourselves. But the problem is if you're scattered and there's Eden in Turkey and there's Eden in South America and in America and Britain and France and Morocco and, and Persia, uh, there's no way for the Torah to be able to move beyond its boundaries without becoming lost in translation. So what, what's required then is a complete shift 
in Judaism, from being a focal point of the subjective inner dimension of the soul to becoming something which is much more focused on the objective, shared experience of Kiddush means taking a cup of wine and making a blessing on it. And if Yiddishkeit becomes focused on the external, physical, pragmatic details that we all see together, that's something that can be shared. That's something that can be communicated. That could last through the generations and through the eras. Because even if, even if my children don't have the same soul experience as me, I could still, I could still you know, teach them the mechanics of what it means to make Kiddush. This was the great transition between the first and second base of Megdash. I'll tell you, let me tell you a story just to try to bring home this point of what it means. What does it look like a tzaddik or a tzaddikus who's living in that inner space, a place that, they, that to them is absolutely real, but it's impossible to communicate. So I just saw this the other day. It's a strange one, but it's a, it's a story like this. There's um, one of the great tzaddikim was Remendel Rimenover. So great tzaddik. And so he was a big tzaddik in his own right. When he was younger, he was a student of the Naimel Melech, Rabbi Melech of Lezhensk. And so the story goes like this, that he was once by, um, by the Naimel Melech uh, Friday night by the Tish. And uh, it was up to soup, chicken soup. So the waiter comes in to bring soup to, to the Rebbe. So the, t- the waiter takes a bowl of soup and puts it by the Naimel Melech. Rabbi Melech is sitting there. And everyone's, you know, it's a Tish. Everyone's talking, what to eat and whatever it is. And the Naimel Melech takes the bowl of soup and just spills it on the floor. And Remendel Rimenover is watching this, and Remendel Rimenover calls him, he says, Rebbe, Rebbe, we're going to be put in jail. And then Rimenover says, no, 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 don't worry, we're right here. And no one has any idea what they're talking about. The conversation doesn't make any sense. He's spilling the soup. Remendel Rimenover says, Rebbe, we're going to go to jail. And the response is, don't worry, we're right here. <laughs> What's going on? So after the whole thing was over, they asked Remendel, what, like, what just happened? And they asked Remendel, so this, this is what happened. At that time, the parts, you know, in those days they had a, a guy that was sort of the landowner of the whole shtetl. And he was basically, he could do whatever he wants. That's pretty much what it was, except for certain things. You know, there, he, had, he had a lot of control, but ultimately he had to answer to the, to the prince, to the king, to the czar of the entire district. So the Maisa was that this, the, the, the parts that was in charge of that shtetl was a big anti-Semite, as they usually were. And he was plotting and, and seriously wanted to Expel, expel the Jews from his whole district. And this, was, this obviously would be, would be problematic. And so, but he knew that he didn't have the power, he didn't have the jurisdiction to do that. So he had to make an official case against the Jews to, with the king. And the way, way it worked was that he would have to write down on an official document, you know, a whole thing, what his problems are with the Jews, he would present to the king, and that would be the problem. Now it happens to be this czar was someone who was very superstitious. He was very superstitious by nature. And so the Nehemiah said the following thing. That night when we were sitting by the Tish in the parts at his home, he was sitting by his desk with his you know, quill and a thing of ink about to write down on the paper his official uh, complaints against the Jews and he was presented to the king. But it happens to be he's superstitious, which means, said the Nehemiah, I knew that if somehow something were to happen while he's writing, as an omen that this is a bad idea, he's not going to do it. So suddenly what I did was, I was there, whatever this is, and he had a thing of ink, you know, a little uh, reservoir of ink. And so I needed that ink. I needed to spill it on the paper. If the, if the ink like, gets knocked over, right? So by, by the parts, he's going to think of that as an omen. He's not going to do it. So when I, it looks like I was taking my bowl of chicken soup. I, I was just, my hands were here, but my soul was there. My consciousness was there. 
And so I was moving the chicken soup, and I spilled it over on the floor. And what that was doing at the same time, I was moving the ink, and the ink spilled over on the paper, and he took that as an omen, and he, uh, he dropped his plants. The Remendel Rimenover was also in that place. But he was so in that place that he completely lost sight of the fact that he, that he physically was here. So he imagined and he saw that Mamish Lamimach was in the parts' office spilling ink on his paper. So he says, Rabbi, you're going to get put in prison like that. So, Mendel, so the Lamimach said, no, 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 Mendel, we're here. We're here. See, such a thing. So it sounds like a crazy story, but there are tzaddikim like this. There are tzaddikim like this, of people that are here, but they're completely not here. That's what the first base of English was for everyone. Somewhere in between the Naimim Lamimach and Mendel Rimenover, of being here, but not really being here at the same time. So how could you give that over? You can't give that over to, 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 to the next generation, to someone that speaks a different language. There's, there's no, you can't write that in a book. You know, like Torah nowadays survives because it's written, right? How could you write that? You, you can't write, you could write about what Kiddush looks like, but you can't write that, that experience of being in some other worldly place. Can't be done. And so the Jewish people, again, there had to be this transition from the first temple to the second temple of moving Yiddishkeit from a subjective, internal, mysterious place of the soul to, a, to an objective, shared experience. Kiddush is no longer a gateway into this supernal universe of prophecy. It's now picking a cup of wine, making a blessing, and that's something that can be taught to children. And it can be communicated in writing. And it could allow Yiddishkeit to survive. That's the beauty of the second base of Migdash, but here's the problem. The problem is, is that now Yiddishkeit, now Yiddishkeit is without a soul. Yiddishkeit is without a soul. And, the, whole, and the, the goal is not just to survive. What's the goal? To survive the exile. The goal is to eventually get back to Eretz Yisrael with the third base of Migdash and, return, and to have a return of prophecy. The problem is, is that through all the years of exile, we've completely, this is the concern, that the Jewish people might lose touch completely with the entire experience of the soul to such a degree that, that all that's left is a shell of itself. And so we officially survived. We officially made it throughout the eras with everyone making Kiddush. But what Kiddush was and what Kiddush is supposed to be is completely lost to us. So the, here's the problem. When you lose the first base of Mikdash and you transition to the second, you have now survival but you've lost the purpose of survival. You've lost the, the, the soulful experience. What is life if it's just all an objective, shared, pragmatic, finite reality? There's no soul to it. So not only does it lose its depth, but how, how will we eventually recapture prophecy? We've lost the language for it. We've lost the tools for it. We've lost the ability to, to even know what it is. I don't even know what I'm talking about. That, that's how far removed we are from prophecy, that you could talk about prophecy, you don't know what you're talking about. So the question is, we've accomplished, Yiddish, the second base of English means we've survived exile. But for what end? For what purpose? How are we ever going to recapture that soul? That's the question. And the goal ultimately is to return to the base of English, like I said, with the third base of English, and to return to that state of otherworldliness. So how do we do that? And understand, this is in depth, the pneumius, this is the, 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 the deeper understanding of what it means there being a decree of death over the Jewish people. Like I said, the whole story of Purim is about Lahash Malaragab, right? There was a decree of annihilation. So, I mean, thank God, thank God, we, don't have, we shouldn't have such a thing in a, in, you know, in, a, in a physical sense, God forbid. But what does it mean, death? Death means a separation between body and soul. That's what death means. That's what death means. The soul means, what is the soul? The soul, 
The soul means that first base of Middash experience. And what is the body? The body means something that you could paint a picture of. You could describe in words. There's a language for it. That's the second base of Middash. What Haman, Haman was just... The, the decree of Haman, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a deeper sense for us, means, yeah, you might have the second base of Migdash, but the soul is completely gone. The disconnect from body and soul, the disconnect between the subjective, internal, transcendent reality of first temple, and completely losing that, and only having the objective, concrete, technical details of the second base of Migdash, which can be passed on from country to country, true, but without a soul to it. When, that, when, when such a divide between body and soul takes place in Judaism, it's only a matter of time until it's going to also take place to the Jewish people. So you have the decree of Haman trying to rip the soul out of the Jewish body, right? That's just a reflection of what was going on on a historical place, on a historical you know, perspective, which is the soul of the Jewish people, the first temple, being ripped away from the body of the Jewish people, the second temple. You understand? It's the same story. What's happening by the Jewish people on, in on Torah level, the transition from first to second and the divide between the two of them is just repeating itself or expressing itself in a, in a, on a practical level of lahash melahar to destroy the Jewish, to separate the Jewish soul from the Jewish body as well. That was the threat of Haman. But Baruch Hashem, we have Purim. So what is Purim? So Purim means, somehow, we don't have this first message anymore. It's talk it true. We don't have that anymore. But Purim means, Purim means, <clears throat> that despite the fact we don't have the first base of Migdash, even within the second base of Migdash, this is the, this is the kicker of Purim, that even within the second base of Migdash, even within a Yiddishkeit that's objective, that's pragmatic, that's practical, that's able to be written down and recorded and passed from country to country, still, even within there, you can find a soul. Even within there, you can find a soul. Now, let me explain. There's a principle that we have in, in Torah, and this I'll just put this in parentheses, which is that whenever you have two extremes and you want to, you, you, you always want to have a bridge to, you know, to bridge extremes. That's what you want. So we have these two extremes, right? You have the first base of Migdash, otherworldliness, the Nami al spilling soup, but he's really spilling ink 10 miles away. Different place. And then you have everyone else at the table, which are just, they're just eating chicken soup. That's much. It's two separate worlds. In order to bridge that gap, which is what Perm is celebrating, the, re, the, 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 the ability to reconnect body and soul together, there has to be a bridge in between. There's got to be a bridge in between. What is the bridge in between? The answer is, the bridge in between is the following thing, that even within the subjective, the, the objective, concrete reality of the second temple, Kiddush means holding a cup of wine and making a blessing. At the same time, there is an ability and a responsibility, as parents, by the way, and specifically mothers, to ensure that within that objective, concrete reality, there is something that's subjective that's unable to be articulated. What do I mean? You can write down, let me give you a, a very simple example. This, isn't, this is going to be very practical. For me, I don't know. You, you can write down in a concrete way, you could, you could second base amygdash, this, like, Sudha Shabbos, right? You, you, could, you could do that. You could do that. You could write down on a piece of paper, 
not just you know the shopping list. You could write down the the schedule of what a shop, what a the Shabbos looks like. Okay, everyone comes to the table. Everyone has a plate and a fork. This kiddish, how might see? You know, you wash and filter fish, all the things. That's second base of Migdash, and that's true. And during the Suda, are you all transcending to a higher place in the soul? Maybe. I don't know. I speak for myself. No. But at the same time, everyone knows that a, a house that has a Shabbos meal to it has a smell. There's a smell of what it, looks, what, it, what it smells like when you come into a home Friday night and the chant is like beginning to cook. There's a certain smell of, there's a certain aura when you look at the Shabbos candles. There's a, there's a smell of Yiddishkeit. There's, there's, there's an experience that even if you're not transcending to some higher universe, like the first base of Mikdash, all you are is second base of Mikdash. But even there, there's an inner space. Even there, there's an inner space. Everyone knows, everyone knows that when you think back to, to, to memories of childhood, right? Let's see, good, positive memories of childhood, of, 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 of you know, uh, thoughts of Yiddishkeit, memories of Yiddishkeit, it usually comes with something that you can't explain. And when you usually try to explain it to a friend or to a neighbor, you end up like feeling a, feeling a little embarrassed because you, you hear yourself talking and you're like, that wasn't such a big deal. But to me, it was like the biggest deal in the world, right? Uh, your grandmother's like latkes. And you think it to yourself, you share that, that story with a neighbor and you're like, okay, it's a latke. Like, but, but it was different. It wasn't just a latke. There was a certain smell when you come into the house. Uh, when your grandmother hugged you, she had a certain perfume, right? And like it, you know, maybe sometimes made you nauseous. Maybe you didn't like it, but I, I, do you understand what I'm saying? There, there's, 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 there, within the objective reality of things, there's this subjective experience of Yiddishkeit. I'll, I'll tell you something, you know, Rav Salvechik was the, the Rosh Hashiv of YU, right? So he's known, you know, the whole, the whole Salvechik world is known to be very cold, and like that's their reputation, to be cold and lit fox in such a way. But Rasalvechik was, was an extremely uh, emotional person. And he wrote the following thing. And listen to this. This is coming from a Litvak, a Litvish, a Rosh Yeshiva, a Salvechik. This is what he said. He said, growing up in his home, sorry, it's getting late. I, growing up in his home, it was a small house. It was a small house. And his father used to give a shear to the Yeshiva Bachrim. It wasn't like some other expansion. It was in his home. And not only was it in his home, it was in his bedroom. Like his room was also his father's study. And so when the Bachram came for a shear, it was in his room. And very often, Rosh used to say, I was still in bed. And I would just like hang out in bed, listen to the shear. I, he said, I didn't understand what was taking place. But I just remember the names. Like I remember there was Rambam, right? There was Ravid, there was Rashi. Like th- these are the names. And he said that, he used to say that this is what happened. His father would start uh, talking about a Rambam. And then he, and, 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 and it would come so alive he, he, would, he, would, he said like this, he said, I would, I would run out of the bedroom and I would run to my mother and I'd say, Mama, the, the Rambam is being attacked by the Ravid. Rashi is, is fighting against Isaac. They're fighting with each other and Daddy's going to help the Rambam. And he would run back into his bedroom and after the whole shear was over, again, he didn't understand what was going on. At the end of the shear, it became clear the Rambam won, right? And so he runs back to his mother and says, Mama, Daddy helped the Rambam, the Rambam won the fight. And he used to say, he said, like, that's where, that." He said, that impacted me much more than if I understood what the Rambam said. You understand? There was a smell to that shear. 
on a hard day, on a bad day, you don't go back. You have to go back to the smell of Jonathan Kogel. There's a smell of what Shabbos smells like. There's a feel of what Shabbos is. If you take our, 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 our universe and you explain to a non-Jew and you go through the entire procedure and you explain in great detail, you write down everything that we experience, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it because they don't know what it feels like to be like, you know, they don't know what, it sm- what a shul smells like like on Simchas if you don't mind, I'm sorry. There's a certain. I go some of the guys like I know by by Hashanah Rabba, they you know Kapa Hashanah says a certain. There's a. I what can I tell you? There's a certain. There's a, there's an aroma to it because we have the. When it comes to Purim, there's a, there's a theme of smell. By the way, right? Hadassah. Her name is Hadassah. It's Hadassah. Mordechai. The name of Mordechai means besamim. Means incense. Chai vinish lebesume bepuria. The word means to become intoxicated. The word besume comes from besamen. It means to smell intoxicated. What is a smell? A smell is, every other sense is something you could point to, something concrete, something objective. What's a smell? A smell is that you're picking on some atmosphere that's around you. That's what a smell means. Yiddishkeit, yes, it's concrete. It's second base amigdashtik, true. But even in that space of second base amigdash, there's an atmosphere that you have to create. There's an atmosphere that you have to experience. And that's... And it's because, and by holding on, let's put it this way, by holding on to the subjective smells and feelings and personal experiences of Yiddishkeit within that concrete universe, the second base of Migdash, that's what's going to allow us to then return and recapture prophecy. Because prophecy is also this, this sense of smell just to an extreme. Like I said, the objective is to find a balance, to find a bridge. So what is in between the first base of Megdash, which is a completely otherworldly experience, and the second base of Megdash, which is concrete, technical details? The, the answer is the smell of a Shabbosud. The feel of what it, of what it feels like, you know, uh, when, when, you, when, when, when you hug a yid, when you hug your child. That, that, that feel. That's the in-between. That's the in-between. And Purim is therefore Yantif, and this is how we defeat Haman, because Haman says the soul of the Jewish people, that internal mysterious place, is completely gone. And all you have now are just rules and regulations, a framework. And that's death. Our response to Haman is, it's true we don't have the ultimate otherworldly experience, but even in our framework of Judaism of the Second Temple, we have a soulfulness in there. And what's the soulfulness? The memories that we have from the times that we're children, the feelings of Yiddishkeit, the smells, the sounds, what is it, the sound of the shay from Rosh Hashanah. And what that does to you when, when, you, when you hear that jolt, that's something that you can't articulate and you shouldn't be able to articulate it. It's a soulful, objective reality. Is it the soulfulness of the Rebbe Melech being literally in another place? No, but it's a taste of that. And as long as you have a taste of something otherworldly, something private, something soulful, something mysterious, it means that you're still holding on a little bit to the first base of English, and that means with time you can recapture the entirety of the first base of English. So that's the idea. The idea is you're living in the second temple, and the only way to survive and to pass on Yiddishkeit is if it's structured and regulated and, and, and tangible and objective. But always, always make sure to hold on to a little bit of the first temple. 
And by holding on a little bit to that first temple, which is that soulful, deep, internal smells and feelings and, and a personal experience of Yiddishkeit that you cannot share with anyone, and you try to recreate that in your family, by doing so, you're holding on to a little shirayim of the first temple. And if you have a, a, a piece of the first temple, then it's only a matter of time until you recapture the whole thing with the coming of Mashiach, and you'll be able to recapture that experience of divinity, of prophecy, that, that was ex- otherworldly and will return to us, Bez Hashem. That's what Purim is. So let's go back to the very beginning. Purim is a yantiv that has two themes to it. <clears throat> Something that we all share together, Gila, Shalchmanis, and so on. Yet at the same time, a person drinks and they, re- and they get into that inner space where their reality is just within themselves. Which one is it? That's the entire end of Purim. The entire end of Purim is to celebrate, not, we're not celebrating the details of Yiddishkeit, we're celebrating the smells, the feelings, the memories, that which you cannot articulate to anyone else. That's what you're celebrating on Purim. Perm is a yantif that we sell. What, what, are we, what, are, what is it about Yiddishkeit that we're celebrating on Purim? What we're sell, and, this, and this is the core point. And if you're going to take away anything, it's this. That what you're celebrating on Purim and all the and all the effort that you're going to do to make Purim beautiful, remember and give this over to your children. What you're celebrating on Purim is what it, what it smells like when you come into your home on Shabbos morning and there's chong cooking. That's what you're, smell, that, that's what you're celebrating. The, 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 the beautiful... On the, the, the experiences of Yiddishkeit, the memories that you have from the child and the memories that you're giving to your children of what Yiddishkeit feels like, that's what you're celebrating. That's what means a, a living and breathing Yiddishkeit. It's not a dead Yiddishkeit. It's a Yiddishkeit that has a soul to it. And that soul might not be the extreme version of soul like the first temple, but it has a soul. Has a soul, and we have to be able to do that. And only, and, and you should know that the, the, one of the major responsibilities as as a, as a mother and as a wife is to try to, you know, there's there's so much stuff like second base amigdash things in the home, right? To make sure that everything is like functional properly. You leave it to the husband; it's not a good idea, right? So you have to. I'm speaking for myself. So you have to be able to work things out properly. But don't forget that while you're trying to survive, remember why you're living. Remember why you're putting in so much effort for the kids to be successful in school and why you're putting in so much effort to make Shabbos. For what? Because what you want, not that the kids should, should live. Uh, to live, they don't need Chantan uh, Kogel. They don't need a Gefilte fish. They don't need all that stuff. What they want and what you're trying to give them is what it smells like to have a Shabbos home, to have a one Shabbos. And that's the experience. You want to give them the memories that they're always going to go back to and they'll never be able to explain to anyone else. That's what you want to give them. That's what Purim is, a celebration of that. Let me end off with a quick story. I'm sorry, it's late. Very quickly. So, you know, there's a big tzaddik. And his name was Rabbi Yankel Ishbitzer, the Beis Yaakov. So, quick stories like this. He, he, was, he, he lived the uh, late 1800s. So he said that um, he used to give a shear late at night. Late at night in Gemara, you know, one in the morning, two in the morning. And there was an old Jew that survived the Holocaust and so on. And he was by that shear. He used to go to that shear consistently. And he said the following thing. He said... Throughout the war, I don't remember anything that the Rebbe said in the, in the Gemara Shia. I don't remember any of that. But what kept me going, and what I do remember, is one thing. That after the Shira was over, the way he kissed the Gemara. That's what I remember. And that's what held me. That's what kept me going. You say that? Okay, I kiss him. It, that was the soul. That was the soul of this year. That was the soul of this year. You have that? You'll be able to become a prophet one day. That's the idea. You'll be able to recapture prophecy. Hashem should bless us. 
that to know Yiddish is to celebrate properly, to, to always hold on to the soul, and always make sure that we somehow find ways to articulate that to our families, to continue that on, that legacy of the unexplainable, the, the mysterious, otherworldly feelings of Yiddishkeit. That's what we have to give over. Hashem should bless you, that you should to do that properly and healthfully. We should have an amazing program together. Yeah, Shukar again. Thank you again. Thank you. 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 Thank you.